Welcome to Data is a Team Sport. This is School of Data's podcast series exploring the ever-evolving data literacy ecosystem. These podcasts were edited from live online conversations, and you can find the video of, from those conversations, along with notes and links to all the resources we mentioned in the blog at schoolofdata.org. I'm your host, Dirk Slater, and I have an agency called FabWriters, and along with being an active member of the School of Data community, we also help advocates and activists design tactics that utilize data to accelerate social change campaign strategies. You can learn more about us at fabwriters.net. Helping me out both behind and in front of the scenes is Caitlin Rogers from School of Data. In this episode on government policies and incentives around data literacy, we're talking with two open data practitioners who have both worked inside and outside of government. Tamara Puhovsky is a sociologist, innovator, public policy junkie that is based in Croatia and works throughout the Balkans. She describes herself as a time traveler journeying to 19th and 20th century public policy centers and trying to bring them back with her to the 21st century. Anya Calderon is the executive director at the Open Data Charter, which is a collaboration between governments and organizations working to open up data based on a shared set of principles. For the past three years, she led the national open data policy in Mexico and established capacity building programs across more than 200 public institutions. We started the conversation with Anya telling us about her lessons learned. We know that open data is more about than just putting out data sets. It requires changing established norms. It requires changing mindsets, but also leveraging partnerships and then being able to build the skills and the trust that is needed to process that data and uh, ultimately start to see some improvements in, in government, in govern governance or, or other areas of impact. And that, of course, is a much longer and more complex process. Um, it requires overhauling systems that were designed to be closed in the first place to actually make them open by default instead. And this is one of the core principles that the Open Data Charter advocates around. So for me, the biggest challenge in getting government to become open by default is changing um, what is often a risk-averse culture into one that values openness as a means to improve their outcomes and be able to deliver for citizens. So it's not just about transparency and accountability. Um, I think perhaps an example here um, where this became clear to me while I was working in the government of Mexico is how I saw um, how hard it was for government officials to be able to access the information that they need to design and deliver the policies that they are um, tasked to deliver and then make better decisions every day and these are decisions that are affecting the lives of millions. Uh, this was a challenge to access data within uh, their own ministries and even harder when we start trying to access data that is outside uh, other ministries. But then when information was available, an even bigger gap was having the skills required uh, inside of government to process that data. That it's a, a huge gap that is often lacking. And for example, in Mexico, there was a nationwide industrial policy that was being developed to democratize productivity. 
But information um, that the finance ministry needed around this, uh, about what skills were available in our country and where, was at best five years old and available at very aggregate levels. This is too late and not detailed enough to be able to inform what type of labor investment is needed in, in each region to be able to thrive under. But then we realized that turning to the health ministry, the social security data, um, with that, we could track the type of skills that part of the working population has at a very granular levels and how then labor migrates across sectors and even across within cities in almost real time. But here sharing one agency's data with another, especially one that involves uh, personal data, takes a long legal and very bureaucratic process. So the case for opening that data was strong, being able to structure, open that data, making sure it was anonymized and ready to use, actually helped break those silos inside of government. But then it also allowed for others, uh, those that did have the skills were data literate, um, as well as domain experts to be able to collaborate um, with academic institutions as part of what became an Atlas Free um, Economic Prosperity Project that was not, and it's now powered by open data from several government agencies, including um, data from the dynamics of employment, from salaries, trade flows, other characteristics to be able to understand what are the economies that could potentially emerge in the country in the near future. There are so many different factors that are needed in order for uh, data to get used. And, and one of the things that, that you know, you've just pointed out is that, um, like, even within a government, there's all sorts of government departments, right? Like, one piece of data um, needs a, a whole bunch of, of input and use by other government agencies and all that for it even to make sense. And then you have the whole thing of, like, you know, where's what's... How are citizens picking it up and using it? So Tamara, let me let me bring you in and, and get you to talk a little bit about um, your own experiences and what your lessons learned are in getting governments to open up. There are three three kind of problems going on. One is that motivating governments to open data. That's one. Uh, second is okay, we opened up data, but nothing happened, which is then a problem with demand in the ecosystem uh, outside of the government. And then the third one is not being um, specific about what kind of data and not looking at data beyond technology. So what I mean by that is, for example, you know, in India, they took the data from, uh, they're fighting fiscal transparency, they took data uh, about the money spent and they wrote it on the walls. So you, uh, data is not necessarily about technology and we sometimes uh, forget that. Um, so uh, the, in this, this kind of um, uh, environment that I work in, um, I've come up with an equation, if you'd like to know, of how to get it done. Oh. To get things mathematical. No, uh, it's, it's kind of a joke, but I say it's uh, political capital plus the amount of different sectors you have in the CVs of the people who are implementers times the enthusiasm and the um, effort you're willing to invest in the project. That's, you know, the kind of stuff that's needed for um, things to work out. And, um, you know, I... I'm very careful to, to kind of give tips to government whispers because I think it really depends on even the person that you're working with. But what concerns me the most is the connection between uh, open data and capitalism, if you will, or the market. Uh, and then again, to, to provide some uh, context, I, I was 
born and raised in socialism, so I do have uh, a different kind of a perspective on public good and uh, private sector. And I, I do think that open data, um, the way that uh, we are advocating for open data is generally, you know, you quote the European Commission findings on how many millions of euros open data will bring. And the problem with that is that you can only use it once. Um, so you go to the governments and you say, you know, this is going to make a lot of money for the budget, for the citizens, they'll be happy. And then when that doesn't happen, it usually doesn't happen, at least not straight away. And they all have only four years or less than four years to prove um, that what they're doing is useful. You can't use it again. Secondly, this argument that connects data to, um, to money uh, is a problem because we are kind of teaching our governments that, um, you know, they're not doing it because it's their job to do it. They're doing it because we can provide evidence of, you know, benefits. And it's advocating governments is becoming more and more about providing benefits uh, for them, whereas it should be, you know, do your job kind of a thing. Um, so sooner or later, first of all, they're going to ask, you know, show me the money. And second of all, they're going to get used to um, looking at their job as, okay, I'll do it if you provide uh, me a clear analysis of what kind of benefits that is for me, which is, of course, useful, but... We need to take care of doing um, doing that. And then thirdly, uh, I think that, you know, data is public good. Um, so data doesn't necessarily have to make uh, commercial sense. Of course, that's important. That's one uh, a part of it. And I think that, you know, private sector, and I'm in the private sector now, as I have my own company, is very important. But I think that there are a lot of different priorities for opening up data. And if you miss in the beginning in advocating these priorities, then you have a problem with the process. Uh, and these priorities can be from internal uh, uh, priorities for the government. So what kind of data do you need to make the administrative process better? To what kind of multilateral um, multilateral agreements you have to what kind of sexy data for the citizens and many priorities that um, should be looked at for having data published. So uh, for me at the moment, and this is such a huge discussion that I chose just this little micro perspective. For me at the moment, it's really about looking at opening data and trying not to advocate it as a clear kind of financial gain. And secondly, I, I, as I'm an open government expert, first of all, uh, for me, it's also about, um, you know, making sure that open government is not being whitewashed by open data. What I mean by that is that very often open data is kind of the easiest and the least politically sensitive thing to do in open government. So uh, open data uh, is going to get much more funds and kind of... Um, uh, um, energy put into it because then the government say they're open when um, they really are not that open, but they're not doing the other stuff. So I think you really have to bring it down to very simple definitions. And the one that I use is that you have an open government um, and the way that you can evaluate if you have an open government is to say how likely and easy it is for citizens to interact with government. That's the goal. People often do put a thing on, oh, government should be run by business, like, or government should be run like a business. And they are not a business. Gover you know, government's reason for being is about public good and, and all that sort of stuff. But it's something that often yeah, gets... Yeah, I think it kind of went from, you know, from the people, by the people, to, you know, for the business and by the business. And it's a big danger, definitely, to all our freedoms. Yeah, yeah. And, and also in that, um, in terms of, you know, pe people that use data really well are corporations, right? And they have a lot of incentive 
for um, for using big data, using you know, collecting lots of information about all of us, and then being able to like translate that into increased prof- profit margin, um, where you know the the incentives for government are very different. Um, it is about that bit of like you know providing the data for the public good, or at least that's what it should be. Um, but there's a, a an earlier bit like you know corporations have money right they've set aside money and and are very good at doing the data bit because they have to whereas it's different for government and one of the things i want um anya to 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 maybe come in a little bit with is like what is it in terms of how do you the capacity right you you know how do you get government to uh, to actually build that capacity in the first place to actually be using data in a in a a good way. Well, I think the the capacity issue is an essential one for any data driven government uh, to be able to leverage the value of opening the data it generates. And just to to say that I, I want to agree with uh, what Tamara is, is proposing that open data in itself is is a good thing and it's is something it's not a nice to have but a, a must have that that governments need to start looking into but i think just positioning or trying to sell it as something that is required um, could also lead to sort of not being able to target or prioritize what type of data sets um, governments are starting to open so that we actually see its use leading to impact. And that's where I think building uh, capacity and use of uh, the data that government generates um, for the programs that they're looking to achieve is so important uh, because the the goal we should be uh, advocating around is for um, the way government implements and designs its policies to be able to improve the lives of citizens. We don't just want data for its own sake. So in a way, being able to prioritize data literacy inside of government needs to be integrated as an essential part of the policymaking cycle around how they're designing and delivering the programs that they're looking to achieve. Um, And I, I think this on one hand, um, my experience has been that largely that's not the case. Um, it's more so uh, you see governments making decisions based on intuition rather than than really leveraging uh, data uh, in in sort of real time um, or optimum um, values in terms of of making decisions and and then being able as well to adjust so on one hand i perhaps would would drill it down to different layers it it is a, a positive um aspect to have in itself such as transparency and accountability we should not uh take that for granted we should make sure it's connected with how it's leading to better outcomes and that requires the use and data literacy inside of government Um, But it also is in the interest of governments to prioritize data literacy in its citizens because often the the skills are not within government, but it also will help or allow for building of coalitions in support of the type of collective delivery around their goals while providing an additional layer of accountability to make sure that the way programs are being implemented are actually leading to impact and if not be able to course correct before it's too late. 
Interesting. So, because I have this thing in my head, like, okay, so government needs to sort of prioritize data literacy for itself, um, and then you know they, it needs to prioritize data literacy for its citizenry. And I, I think of that as sort of a, a two-step thing. But I think maybe what you're saying is that, that it is, you know, it needs to be approached as a, a more cohesive, you know, thing. There, those two pieces are not mutually exclusive from each other. Probably, and I would think it's it's part of a cycle in being able to uh, test uh, a few things around how uh, programs are are delivered, learning from. Uh, how that's playing out in practicing and being able to adapt and empowered through data-driven learning and use of it to, to be able to have uh, broad participation with citizens informing those policies and whether they're actually meeting their needs and demands. I think Anya is such a good expert in explaining all this that I kind of feel um, coming after, I just need to add a couple of things. Um, and in the first bit, this was adding that we need to be very careful in connecting data to technology and data to money. Secondly, uh, when it comes to working with governments, uh, I think that we all, if we all sit together, we know very well what we want them to do and why. That's not the issue. The issue is how you get them to do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And this is, I go back to the equation. This is definitely political capital. So you need to have a person who um, is strong, has strong uh, political capital who is willing to push for this. That's definitely one of the necessary things. And then secondly, you need to have people who can do this. And I'll give you an example of how ridiculously um, things can get in a way. For example, in public procurement um, in Croatia, you had an example where um, you had agreements with private companies where you didn't specify that you want your data in machine-readable formats. So what would happen was that if when you ask, so you want to publish data and you ask the companies, to provide the data that they are storing or whatever for you. Uh, and then they charge you extra money if they deliver it in a format that's not PDF. Um, so it goes back to educating civil servants about, you know, what kind of formats they need to have and need to ask for. Uh, making internal documents about public procurement, about, uh, you know, what needs to be in those agreements, changing all those agreements. So it really is um, kind of down to knowing um, scanning what's going on in the government and finding way um, around um, changing that. And I think that when, when I work with civil servants, I think that it really does help the fact that I used to work in the government because very often people who work with them uh, come from the outside, so they don't come from the government sector. They're usually very tech savvy, which I'm not, so I'm embarrassingly uh, technologically um, uh, uh, uneducated and have no technological literacy, which actually helps because I simply uh, speak in a very simple language. And then thirdly, it's, for example, there is, I don't know if you know about it, there is a Google document about, you know, all the excuses about opening up data. I don't know if you know this. Uh, no, I haven't. Uh, no. Oh, my but... God, it's the best thing ever. Like everybody who is working with governments, this is the first thing you need to have. So there is an online Google document. I'll send you the link where Great. people put in um, excuses why not to open data. And then they put in, um, you know, how you get, uh, what are the, the arguments against those excuses. For example, there is an argument, you know, what if terrorists, this was used in, in actually Zagreb Public Transport, we still don't have an app which tells you in real time when the, you know, buses are coming. And one of the arguments was used, you know, what if terrorists find this? And it's ridiculous in our context. Um, so, yeah, you get that document and you go through it and uh, you make sure that, you know, 
people know these are excuses and then uh, you can get down to real problems such as for example the one with the public procurement that i told you about um, but you know everything anya said absolutely you know raising uh, um, the level of literacy when it comes to data tech skills um, and so on all that is a big big job to be done within the governments and um, they one of the problems is that you know and this is why i joke that i'm a time traveler because uh, you know uh, public administration moves so slowly uh, that it can't work in the pace that we have now, uh, especially technologically. It can't work that fast. And this is a huge problem because if we don't make governments, you know, pick up speed and provide things that are manageable and interesting and usable for citizens, then the only things that politicians are left with in convincing people why they should stay in power and get money for what they do is, you know, scaring people and, you know, becoming extremists. Uh, because, you know, you can't prove otherwise that you're useful. So we have a very important job in everything that's going on in the world today um, in, you know, making governments pick up pace and kind of be at the same uh, level and the same uh, pace as the societies are, which is extremely hard. I've seen this Google Doc and I think it's a great resource. But I'd like to see us move beyond sort of explaining why we need to open data and uh, show cases and, and uh, stories of use of why it's providing a value and why um, by opening data... Um, public officials are going to be able to develop better health programs or education outcomes in the education ministry. It's actually going to help them achieve their goals. It's in their, their interest, in, and that requires linking data from the start to what are the problems and solutions that we're trying to build together. What, what Anya's talking about is the level of advocacy that you have to have, A, with uh, uh, officials, not with civil servants. So these are, you know, politically elected people that are on a high level where they can make decisions because this doesn't work with civil servants. Civil servants do what it says on a piece of paper is their daily job and their responsibility, and that changes very slowly, or what they're told by their superiors. Um, it's, it's a very... Um, uh, it's a very non-dynamic hierarchical system. So uh, even if even if, as citizens, if they understand, of course, that you know connecting data to uh, and, and understand why this would be beneficial, that does not necessarily mean that the civil servants they can and will do it. So um, th that's one thing. And then secondly, the thing with uh, uh, officials, so people, for example, ministers and and so on, you can't, uh, you know, you can't create an app if you don't know what a cell phone is. So the problem is that you need to advocate that way before they are in the office. Once they're in the office, it's too late. They, If they don't already know about data and open data, it's very hard to find room and time to start explaining you know, the benefits and connect. It's, it's very hard. So I think, in it, for example, for me, I've been trying to work on a project to um, do this kind of um, education and awareness in political parties and trying to make it a system to uh, kind of go up in your political party by doing something that's new and useful, because I think we are doing it way too late. You're listening to Data as a Team Sport. In this episode on government priorities and incentives for data literacy, I'm talking with Tamara Puhovsky, who works with governments in the Balkans, and Anya Calderon, who is the executive director of the Open Data Charter. 
we've got elected officials, we've got civil servants, um, we've got citizens, and then also there's um, advocates. Um, and, and, you know, the, these folks are all trying to work together to get governments to doing the open data. Um, and uh, this, this bit that also Anya, you know, brought up in, in terms of like, you know, making that argument and showing how this all works together and is a benefit to sort of everybody in the ecosystem. Curious for both of you, like, where do you see gaps? Sure, maybe I can jump in, and, and, and I really liked the the fact that Tamara raised these these two different levels of um, what I like to call uh, in in terms of uh, being able to think politically but work technocratically, and and those require very different strategies and and how we approach each of these. So so I definitely agree agree with that, um, and and I think one of the major gaps in uh, providing is more around that sort of technocratical level, uh, providing support for um, public officials that are tasked to implement open data policies and what types of resources are available, or even um, a lack of a safe space, I would argue, to be able to share challenges um, and opportunities around uh, being opening data within their government. And um, on one hand, having the the political uh, high and high-level support in that political capital is important, but then we need to focus um, the strategy on delivery, and, and that really is sort of where the, the devil is in the details. Um, and perhaps around, around how delivery happens, I think in regards to the data literacy ecosystem, we're not placing enough emphasis to precisely what we're beginning to discuss now, which is the systems part of it. Um, usually when people seek to use data, it's about developing or under, an understanding of a, of a new idea or a tool or a story that can act as a tool to help achieve some sort of impact in the world. Um, but that initial expectations, that placing data in the hands of people and then providing all sorts of incentives that we've seen uh, happen for them to start to use it to somehow bring the changes we wish to see has is, is been incredibly um, well, I would say overly optimistic for data to lead to impact, which is what we want to see happen in the data literacy uh, sphere is really much more complex. And to understand what is needed to, to close that impact gap, we recently published a paper with Transparency and Accountability Initiative on rethinking data for accountability. And in this framework, we outline a few of the key conditions that are, we, we think are needed across uh, a data to accountability cycle. And basically that starts with the data, how data is produced, how it is shared, the skills available that is needed to be able to process it, and then an enabling environment for the insights that are derived from uh, its use to lead to action. And essentially having a response mechanism in place to um, actually make a difference. So I see that it's, it's good that there is now a greater push from organizations and donors for greater data use. Often that includes data literacy programs, but some of the conversations that we're having around increasing data use um, only risk reinforcing what I think is an unhelpful dichotomy between supply and demand or supply use. And it risks paying insufficient attention to a wider value chain or, or system that determines whether and how data leads to impact. 
I think that uh, what I find, you know, amusing in a very tragic way is that um, at the last Open Government Partnership Summit, um, I kind of was um, perceived and named as an expert in difficult contexts, um, which, you know, fair enough, uh, uh, it's not easy to, to work in, in, in these countries. But then, you know, with, with things happening with Brexit and with Trump elections, I kind of thought, well, you know, now my expertise in difficult context is becoming of global importance. So, um, you know, there there are things that, and I've I've heard the, the term, for example, enabling environment, be mentioned. I think like maybe ten or twenty times in the last month. Um, so, I think that the kind of in 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 where, where I am at, and um, when I started working all this, I think kind of the first generation of people fighting for this is now kind of passing on the torch to the second generation. Um, and I think it's very important that we think our fight was getting open data and data to become mainstream. That was our fight, um, to um, make people and governments and citizens and everybody understand. And, and it was a very small group of people and it was usually you know tech people who were fighting for this. Now, uh, I think... It, and it happens with everything from feminism to open data when you pray for something to become mainstream and then it becomes mainstream and then you're not that glad it has become mainstream because you have a lot of misunderstanding and you have a, a lot of second generation problems. Um, uh, for example, personal um, secu security. And, you know, at the beginning we were all like, you know, open everything up. The most important thing is to send a message to open things up. Now we're talking about, you know, things that shouldn't be open and what, we should keep closed and what if there's too much data? So I think, and this connects to your um, question about post-truth world. I think that um, it's really not about data. I think for this generation of, you know, both activists and users, um, it's going to be about, you know, values and, and, and um, what you do with data and how you connect data, definitely. And this is something that's barely starting in the region where I'm working whereas in your regions, as far as I understand, this is well underway. Um, so I think that um, the biggest gaps that I see when it comes to data in the region is still kind of the first generation problems where we are still talking about opening, enough, opening up enough data sets and having enough people use them. Um, and we do speak in supply and demand, which might be oversimplification, but I think in this context, it's not it's just right kind of simplification to get things started. And luckily, and this is this this is the great thing about being on peripheries that you can you know maybe skip a few steps. And what I would definitely like to skip is creating a very um, knowledgeable and specific communities around data that are unpenetrable and that are um, the only ones who can push for data. So I would rather have a much broader um, much broader group of stakeholders who are, you know, whatever, advocating agricultural change, use data, then have a group of people who are advocating data, talk about agriculture. True. Uh, oh, um, since you raised it and actually um, want to connect our, our last uh, podcast, uh, which was Mentors, Mediators, and Mad Skills, featured uh, your colleague, Tin, Tin Geber, who is also based in Croatia. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things um, around the, the, the this question of how how has your practice changed in the wake of post fact fake news and all that? One thing he pointed out was that you guys have been in the sort of post fact uh, mode for quite some time, and it's not 
really something new. Yeah, I think that, you know, when you come from um, these kind of countries where we've had, you know, quite a big change, we were joking the other day, you know, we, you know, we lived in pre-truth era and now we live in post-truth era and we're never going to live in the truth era. Um, so, yeah, I think that actually puts us in an, an advantage in, in dealing with this. So for us, that's actually quite a funny story because um, even though the charter has uh, been going on for a few years, it uh, was created as a movement that brought together governments and um, organizations that created a a set of shared principles on how open data policies and programs should look like. Uh, But it was until recently that the, the charter stewards um, selected a, a small team to form its its secretariat and support its network. Um, and we actually came our first our very first day as, as a small team of of three was the first day that Trump came into office. So that for us was um, uh, an important reflection, and and it it really I think influenced the way we started to think about the strategy of the Open Data Charter itself. Um, where we were seeing as as um, things were being rolled out, how um, fragile uh, these programs often are, and what it takes to take open data to a point of no return, and and basically that very much helped us shape um, our strategy into looking to support um, and embed uh, openness in governments, um, a culture of openness and practice in governments in ways that are difficult to to reverse. Um, And so now we're working together with a group of leaders inside of government that are currently facing changes or have faced changes in administrations to learn more about what strategies they've deployed to uh, make open data sticky uh, within their government. and and basically, we're we're trying to see how to take those lessons and share it with a, a broader sort of network of peers around the Open Data Charter, and um, make sure that these strategies are are resilient to changes in in administrations that might not support openness uh, as much as as prior governments. I, I that uh, theme that you just mentioned in terms of the point of no return for open data. You know how do we get how do we get there? And I I I could see that as being like a future endeavor. Well, future for everyone. I think one of the things that um, is really critical in terms of this this theme of open data, um, and one thing we haven't talked about in terms of government and all that is timeframes, right? Um, and one of the things that I think for transparency and accountability advocates, like an important aha and learning for them recently. And this gets into a point that you made, Tamara, in terms of like the first generation, and now we're seeing a second generation. Um, it is going to take generations for us to get to a point where the open data is the norm, and that you know everyone within the ecosystem is working with it together. And we need not to lose sight of that. But I think the other piece there of, of what you just said, Anya, which is so critical, is this: like it's still very much you know, fragile phase. And it takes a long time to get to that point where it is not fragile. Um, and we are definitely seeing a lot more of those, um, 
governments that we thought were on the right track kind of sliding back. And I think that's what's been terrifying about the 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 post fact thing and and but it is a lesson for all of us in looking at like you know how both how fragile it is but how do we get to that point of no return i mean something that you know we've all learned is that democracy is extremely fragile and always will be i don't think there are guarantees and i think when it comes to governments there is nobody more recidivist uh if that's word in english than than the governments are and that's why when we started talking, when you asked me the first question, I started talking about things that I think uh, are causing problems in kind of uh, sustainability of the whole uh, open data uh, policies from my perspective and, you know, in the context that I'm working at, because it is quite different. Uh, you know, we, we, we don't have a lot in these countries that governments can go back on. So we are still kind of building up the institution, the awareness, the skills, and, and so on. But, you know, and this is what I also, when I, when I said it, it's sometimes good to be on periphery, is that we, working on this very beginning now, also can see how um, how quickly things can backslide. And, you know, we can try and integrate that in our beginning um, strategies as well, um, which is, uh, I think, very hard. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, you, you always have these big discussions about how to ensure that, you know, democracy survives and open government survives and open data survives. And I think, you know, the only smart thing that anyone has ever been able to come up with is, you know, educated, aware, active citizens. I mean, you know, that's that's at the bottom of it. And it's the only an education. That's the only thing that can ensure it. But the things that I told you about that I felt were uh, big problems uh, is... Um, uh, the you know using money as incentive which you can only use once and is you know you know what they say about technologies like fire it's a great servant but a horrible master uh, so making sure that you know it's not all about technology and technology driven because that's not how good and sustainable open data um, policies are made so I think what I'm left with after this conversation is how uh, important it is to provide that ownership within the way that that government um, goes about designing and delivering their own programs that uh, ingrains data and the use of data as, as a, an essential part of it. And, and being able to access and process data is important, but it's not the same thing as being able to produce an action and then having the conditions in place for that action to lead to a response for a specific challenge that we're facing. And that's something we're currently trying to test out um, with a series of open up guides that, that we're producing to try to bring these sort of broad open data principles into concrete actions for how sectors are achieving impact. Um, and we're starting with one around anti-corruption that is being road tested with the government of, of Mexico um, and looking into uh, sort of this, this uh, wider va data value chain that we've been discussing. Uh, and maybe to wrap up, I've, I find um, I, I've, I've currently been going back to Duncan Green's um, helpful advice on how to make change happen. And he calls for activists, uh, and I think this, this applies to those both inside and outside of government, to become better reflectivists. Um, that requires taking the time to understand the system before and while engaging it. And if we do this in a way that is um, sort of uh, powered through through data and, and how we open and use that data, I think we'll have uh, more tools to come up with um, change in more effective manners. Tamara, uh, how do you see your work moving forward from here? 
we are treating people as passive users as they were once when they were reading newspapers, whereas in now people are actually generally all people are journalists instead of all people are readers kind of a thing. So I think that in when we put things out there and when we talk about resources, we need to find a way um, to do it uh, completely differently because the metrics is different. Um, so I think, for example, you know, uh, I've been trying to advocate things as a social network uh, for OGP or open government or open data, people where you can have a time bank and get half an hour of somebody you find useful rather than writing blogs and putting literature out there. So I'm not, I, I, the content is important. It should be out there. It's just that the way that we do it needs to change. And I actually want to and, and applaud that because, like, one of the things that uh, we've talked about in this um, uh, series quite a bit is how important it is for um, uh, things like mentorship and and for people to be able to c- connect and uh, share learnings and and all that sort of stuff with each other. Um, and I I always appreciate it when I hear colleagues talk about having open office hours where that, you know, anybody can come and ask them questions and, and things like that. Cause I think, you know, that's a great way for us to be building solidarities. And, and if I can just jump in quickly or to going back to civil servants, I have found, and this is ridiculous, but it's true. I have found that the most useful thing that I could do for them is give them my Facebook profile and then they can message me because for example, the problem with civil servants when they do this kind of work is they have nobody to ask because they can't ask their superior because you can't ask your superior if you don't understand how you should do your job. Um, they don't have any colleagues who work on open data because it's such a rare thing to do and they don't have any pre- predecessors so they can't ask people who used to do it. Um, so And they can't ask you know, NGOs and you know, consultants and people outside of the government because they're civil servants and they're representing their government. And they can't say, listen, I'm not quite sure how to do this. Can you help me? Um, so what I've told them is like, listen, this is my Facebook profile. You can message me anytime. I usually answer in a couple of hours and it's between us. And I promise you it's between us. And then I've been getting like messages, like for example, you know, this is my, this is the way I put the wording in the document. Do you think that will work or will you change something kind of a thing? So definitely having a time bank or open office hours, I think would be very helpful for government people working in the government because they don't have the same kind of um, ability to ask around that we do. Great. And, and just to say, I, that really resonates with what we've been hearing from um, governments adopting the open data charter and then uh, public officials that are tasked to deliver those commitments. There's really no safe space to be able to exchange yeah. views and, and ideas around this. So just to say that we've recently began a very sort of light touch approach into um, catering, brokering connections uh, between uh, different government uh, officials that are experiencing similar uh, challenges uh, also with experts or from organizations outside of government. And you can always give them my Facebook. Uh, I will <laughs> follow Facebook. up with tell you. Definitely. A, <laughs> tell them I'm a government survivor. Um, so that if they need help, I can, I can, I can definitely try. <laughs> I know what that feels like. <laughs> yeah. This concludes this episode of data is a team sport. I'd like to thank our guests, Anya Calderon and Tamara Puchowski, for sharing their learnings, wisdoms, and experiences. I'd also like to thank Caitlin Rogers and the rest of the School of Data team for all their hard work and support in developing the series. You can find the notes from this conversation along with links to all the resources we've mentioned and also view the full video recording of the conversation in the blog at schoolofdata.org. We'd also like to say thank you so much for listening. We hope that this has helped to illuminate and inspire your own efforts around data literacy.